0: History is both purposeful and directional. In God's perfect time, he will put an end to sin and impose everlasting righteousness. God holds us accountable to live according to the knowledge he has given to us in the Bible. students, if you've opened your Bibles to Daniel 9, Daniel 9, we're going to just do a few verses today, verses 20 to 27. These are probably, this is probably the most detailed prophecy in the entire scripture. Isaac Newton once said the um, claims of Christianity can be documented with these verses alone. So it's obviously very important that we take a look at this. Let me just give you a little context before we dive into this. History of Israel. Yahweh, the God of Israel, brought them out of the land of Egypt into the promised land of Canaan. And as part of the covenant God made with them, the terms and conditions of his relationship with them, he said, if you obey my commandments, if you live according to my law, I will abundantly bless you. And if you disobey my commandments and you reject my law, I'm going to curse you and you are going to be exiled from the promised land. Sure enough, centuries later, due to centuries of disobedience, Israel, in fact, was invaded, carried away into captivity by Babylon, just as God has promised. Now, Nebuchadnezzar invaded Israel on three different occasions, 605 B.C., 597 B.C., and the last time in 586 B.C. Daniel, the prophet, who wrote this book, was captured the first deportation, 605. Ezekiel, the prophet, was captured the second deportation, 597, and in 586, Nebuchadnezzar came in for the third time, razed the city, tore down the wall, destroyed the temple, leveled the place. That's the final invasion. Daniel winds up in Babylon at about 15-16 years old, you know the story, we've been there, and over the years rises to the position of Prime Minister, which is the number obviously, one chief executive, under the king, under Nebuchadnezzar for decades, and now under the Persian Empire. So he's the Prime Minister under two separate empires, uh, which uh, Persian Empire conquered the Babylonian Empire October 12th of 539. Daniel has been reading the Old Testament. Does it su- surprise you that Daniel is a man who studies God's word? And he's read in Jeremiah 25 and 29 where God promised Israel that their captivity had a terminus point. Seventy years and they were going to be set free. So if the 70 years of captivity began in 605, And it's now about 537, 536. Daniel knows we're getting really close to the end of this captivity period of time. God had revealed the future of the Gentile world in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. He said, this is the future of what's going to happen to the Gentile. Remember the four empires? We have the Babylonian, the Greek, our Persian, Greek, and Rome. But God has so far said nothing to Daniel about Israel's future, zero. So in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, we find out the future of the Gentile world, but short of the 70 years of captivity and being returned to the land, there's no impact from God's prophecy about what's going to happen to the children of Israel. Daniel's now in his mid-80s, He's a man of fervent and frequent prayer. You know, when the case of the lion's den, he prayed three times a day. That was his habit. He continues to do that. He knows from Isaiah 44 and 45 that the king who's going to set Israel free is named Cyrus. 150 years before this time, God had told Isaiah, the last two verses of 44 and the first two verses of Isaiah 45, the precise name of the king, 150 years later, was going to set Israel free. Well, Daniel's mama didn't raise no fool. Daniel knows that Cyrus is the king that conquered Babylon about three years ago. Well, Cyrus is the one that's supposed to set us free. Jeremiah says it's a 70-year captivity. We're probably in year 68 or 69. It's getting pretty close where Israel's going to go back home. Daniel also has read... Jeremiah 2911 214. God promises Israel, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. And I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. So Daniel reads this and he says, the condition for Israel's return to the land is confession and repentance. You will seek me and find me when? when you search for me with all your heart. By the way, that's very applicable, these verses are to us today. God says, when you search for me with all your heart, when you call upon me and come and pray. So Daniel says, if the nation is going to go back to the land, they have to confess their sins. What does Daniel do? He begins a vast prayer of confession that we studied last week in Daniel 9, the first 23 verses. He begins to pray this prayer of confession And in response to this prayer of confession and repentance, God sends who? Gabriel, the angel who communicates God's plan to Daniel about Israel's future. That's what we're going to study today. Chapter 9, verse 20. Daniel recounts, Now while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God, in behalf of the holy mountain of my God, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. He gave me instruction and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. So Daniel's in this extended prayer. He's praying past the point of exhaustion, which would probably be good for most of us to practice from time to time. I typically fall asleep when I pray to the point of exhaustion, just confessions here, right? So God wanted Daniel to know what his divine plan for Israel's future was. And he wanted Israel to know what his divine plan for the future was. And he wants you and I to know what his divine plan for Israel was. And he says, Daniel, you are highly esteemed. You are greatly beloved by God. And God sent Gabriel at the beginning of Daniel's prayer. Fascinating. He didn't wait. He knew what Daniel was going to pray and confess beforehand. And he sent Gabriel immediately. By the way, that's a fast answer. And Daniel was greatly beloved. It's a fascinating look at this. He's actually greatly beloved because he keeps himself in the love of God through obedience. John MacArthur gave this absolutely fabulous example of how to keep yourself in the love of God. He said, I want you to imagine a large circle, a big circle. And that circle is an O, and that's the circle of obedience. And inside the circle of obedience, God rains down his love, right? Right? Inside the circle. Now, if you step outside the circle of obedience, it's not that God doesn't love you. It's you've stepped outside where the rain of his love is falling. So if somehow you're not getting rained on, maybe you've stepped outside the circle of obedience. Just the thought, right? God now tells Daniel, verse 24, here's the future of your people. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to do six things. Finish the transgression, make an end to sin, make an atonement for iniquity, bring an in everlasting righteousness, seal up vision and prophecy, anoint the most holy place. Here's the principle. History is both purposeful and directional. In God's perfect time, he will put an end to sin and impose everlasting righteousness. History is both purposeful and directional. In God's perfect time, he will put an end to sin and impose everlasting righteousness. Let's try and define some of our terms. This word week, W-E-E-K, it's the Hebrew word Shavim. Shavim means seven, seven. So he's talking about 70 sevens. When we say 70 weeks, a week is just a nomenclature for seven. It doesn't specify days, months, weeks, years, it just says seven. It's like the word dozen. How much is a dozen? Twelve. It doesn't say a dozen donuts, a dozen eggs, it just, it's a dozen means twelve. Seven, a week means seven. So the context here refers to years. Now you need to think like the Jewish nation thinks. We think in base ten, right? We think in tens, decimals. Decades, you go to ten, then you start over, right? Jews thought in sevens and heptads, there were seven days in one week. God created the heavens and the earth in the six days, he rested on the seventh day. They worked six days a week, they rested on the seventh day. They farmed for six years, they fallowed the land on the seventh year. Interestingly enough, because they failed to fallow the land on the seventh year, that's why they're in captivity, because they've rejected that command for 490 years. And so God said, fine, the land hasn't had rest in 70 Sabbaths. You're going in captivity for 70 years because you've rejected my command for 70 Sabbaths. So this time frame of God's plan for Israel is 70 periods of seven years. What is 70 times 7? Seven? Good class. 490. For those of you that went through fifth grade, that's wonderful. Maybe high school now, I don't know. But anyway, (laughs) sorry. So God's plan for Israel is going to take place over a 490-year time frame. Now, it's imperative you understand that the Jewish calendar is 360 days in a year throughout Scripture. It's not 365. Now, we know this because Genesis 7.11 tells us that Noah's flood lasted five months. Also, Genesis 7.24 says the flood lasted 150 days. Well, if you have five months and 150 days, how many days in a month? 30 days in a month. Interesting. We're going to come back to that in a second. It's imperative you understand that all the world's calendars changed in 701 BC throughout the world. We've got history on this, extra biblical as well as biblical. Interesting that happened during Hezekiah's reign in Judah. Now, we don't know exactly why, but there's a number of evidences that it might have occurred due to a near flyby of the planet Mars. At that point in time, it had a pretty unstable elliptical orbital pattern, and this close gravitational influence of Mars, altered Earth's orbit, and extended the solar year from 360 to 365, plus a few hours, right? Every calendar on Earth changed in 701 BC, which is utterly interesting. That near flyby also stabilized the orbit of Mars. So, after 701 BC, the Jewish calendar, every few years they had to add additional days on the 360-day year to align their calendar with the solar year. The Book of Revelation, also verifies the 30-day calendar because it talks about the tribulation lasting three and a half years, lasting 42 months, lasting 1,260 days in three different places. Those are all 30-day months. So we need to keep that in mind because we're going to go through this mathematical prophecy and do some calculations together. God tells Daniel, the future of Israel has been decreed, and decreed, by the way, is a divine edict. So God has decreed that Israel's future is going to take place over a 490-year period. And the word literally decreed or determined means to cut off something or to cut out something. So Daniel's been dealing with a period of time, as we talked about a few weeks ago, called the times of the Gentiles. Now, The times of the Gentiles is a period of time where Jerusalem and Israel are under the authority of Gentile rulers. The city and the nation do not have autonomy for any extended period of time. This period of time began when Nebuchadnezzar conquered Israel in 586. We are still living in the times of the Gentiles because they will not end until Christ returns the second time and establishes his messianic kingdom from Jerusalem. So we are still in the times of the Gentiles. God's telling Daniel, I'm cutting 490 years out of this time of the Gentiles and I'm going to bring about the final restoration of Israel. It's imperative that you read verse 24 very carefully. It says, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your city." The holy city. This prophecy is the, one of the most detailed in Scripture and it relates only to the Jews. It has nothing to do with God's plan for the church. It has nothing to do for pagan nations or the Gentile world. This is for the Jews only, and God says, I have six purposes in this prophecy, six things I'm going to accomplish during this period of time. The first three are negative, I'm going to get rid of them. The second three are positive, I'm going to add those into this world. The first three have to do with sin, the second three have to do with righteousness, and none of them have occurred yet. They're all future. So God's six purposes that he's going to accomplish For the Jews, during this 490-year period, number one, finish transgression. It literally means to bring something to an end. And transgression means to rebel. And it's interesting, I want you to look at your Bible, it doesn't say finish a transgression, it says finish the transgression, singular. So you say, well, what was Israel's the singular transgression? It was their rejection of Messiah as their king. It was their rejection of Jesus Christ at his first coming. Israel has been a scattered, suffering nation because she has sinned by rejecting her Messiah the first time. God says when Messiah returns, Israel's going to repent. And King Jesus is going to restore Israel to her land and bless her. Number one. Number two, to make an end of sins. Your scripture may say to seal up. You may have a translation. Seal up literally means to shut sin up in a prison house. It refers to judging sin and punishment and Israel's national sin of rejection and the Jews' specific sins individually will be judged and forgiven and forgotten. Jeremiah 31 34 says, for I will forgive their, the Jewish nation's iniquity, and their individual sins I will remember no more. Number three, God's purpose during this period of time will be to make an atonement for iniquity. Atonement means reconciliation. Atonement literally means to cover over. It's the same word that was used when Noah built the ark. And he covered the external with pitch, bitumen, asphalt, petroleum, to seal out the water. He was covering over the cracks in the hull of the ark. That's this word for atonement, to cover over, to make amends for. And iniquity obviously refers to our sin nature. So this is, this is a foretaste of the cross, to make an atonement for sins. God made an atonement for sins through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. Christ's substitutionary death on the cross, paid the penalty for what? Our sin and satisfied God's righteous wrath against sin, So God's wrath is now satisfied because he poured it out on his son, Jesus Christ. And so now he can forgive people and their broken relationship with him can be restored if they accept his terms and conditions. By the way, salvation is on whose terms? God's terms. Pastor Roger said this morning, salvation is from the Lord, the book of Jonah. It is. He's the one who writes the terms and conditions for it. Our job is to accept it by faith. So, those are the three negative purposes. I'm going to get rid of sin. I'm going to finish iniquity. I'm going to provide for atonement. What are the three positive purposes during this 490 year period that God's going to do for the Jewish people? He says, number one, or number four, I'm going to bring in everlasting righteousness. It literally means righteousness for the ages, eternal righteousness, righteousness that is going to last forever. And that righteousness is called the Messianic Kingdom or the millennium. We know that when Christ comes back to rule over planet earth, it's going to last for a thousand years. It's interesting that today, as we speak, perfect righteousness is practiced in only one place, in heaven, right? There's no perfect righteousness. That's why we say, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's our prayer, that perfect righteousness will be practiced on earth. In case you haven't noticed. There is no perfect righteousness on this planet, right? When Jesus Christ comes the second time, rules over planet Earth, he will establish everlasting righteousness on Earth. And that's, of course, not going to occur until the end of this 490-year period, when he comes back. Number five, he says, I'm going to seal up vision and prophecy. To seal up here means to, to, to cause, to cease, to bring complete fulfillment. Right now, we have vision and prophecy, written revelation in God's Word. There's going to come a day when you will not need this book. You won't need it, because Isaiah 2 says, Jesus himself will teach us. He will walk with us in the Messianic kingdom, and if you have a question, you can ask him face to face. If you can talk to the author, you don't need to read the author's book, right? So, revelation, prophecies, visions will come to an end. There won't be any need of it at that point in time because everything God promised in this book will come to pass, be fulfilled. It won't be a promise. It'll actually be a completed promise. And lastly, number six, God says, I'm going to anoint the most holy place. Now, that's the holy of holies in the temple, both the tabernacle and the temple where the Ark of the Covenant rested. The imperative point here is the Holy of Holies was where God came down once a year to meet with man, meet with humanity, and where they would sprinkle the blood on top of the ark, right? And that's when the Old Testament, where God's meeting point with man was once a year. What's fascinating, if God says, I'm going to dedicate the most holy place, it means that there will be a temple built in Jerusalem and there currently isn't one. That is interesting. If you want a description of the temple, Ezekiel spends eight chapters describing it, Ezekiel 40-48. to So God says, these are six things that I'm going to accomplish when I establish my messianic kingdom on earth. My kingdom on earth is going to begin at the end of this 490-year period that Gabriel calls 77s. So now we're going to get into some math. When does this 490-year period begin? Glad you asked. Verse 25. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be 70 weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat even in times of distress. God's program for Israel of 77s is going to begin, God's time clock kicks off with a decree to build Jerusalem. And this 490-year period is divided into three subdivisions. You have seven sevens, or 49 years. You have 62 sevens, or 434 years. And you have one seven, or seven years. Now, the first subdivision, 49 years, refers to the time it took to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. It says rebuilding plaza and moat. That plaza, obviously, is rebuilding the interior of the city, all the buildings the, and the streets inside the city. Moat refers to building, the obviously, the fortifications and the wall on the outside. So, it, God is saying, From the time this decree is issued, it's going to be 49 years before the city of Jerusalem has been rebuilt. The second subdivision is 434 years long, 62 sevens. And when you combine those two, the first seven and the second 62 sevens, you get 483 years. And you say, so what? God is telling you the precise day that his son is going to show up on scene in the flesh. He says there's going to be 483 years between the issuing of the decree to rebuild Jerusalem and the official presentation of Messiah the Prince. Now, this is a mathematical prophecy that can be calculated and validated. The 490-year time frame is going to begin when somebody issues a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, and the, not the temple, the city. There were four imperial decrees issued during this time by various kings. The first three authorized Israel to rebuild their temple. That's not what he's talking about. There's only one decree that authorizes Israel to rebuild the city and the walls. And that took place in Nehemiah chapter 2. It came about in the month of Nisan. In the 20th century of King Artaxerxes, I, Nehemiah, said to the king, If it please the king, and if your servant has found favor before me, send me to Judah, to the city of my fathers, that I may rebuild it. So it pleased the king to send me. Verse 7. And I said to the king, If it please the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river. That's a safe passage. And number 8, interesting. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to do what? Make beams for the gates of the fortress, which is by the temple, for the wall of the city. This is the first time that any Persian king says, you can rebuild the city and rebuild the walls and fortify the city. If you're a king and you're in Persia and somebody who you conquered 70 years before says, we like to rebuild the cities and the walls and the gates, you would think, ah, they might be getting a little close to rebellion. I don't think, you can rebuild your temple, but no walls, because if I want to come in and take you, I can come in and take you. This is the first time that they were allowed and commanded in Nehemiah secured position to rebuild the walls of the city. Artaxerxes of Persia began his reign over Persia in 465 BC. It's now his 20th year. 465 minus 20 is 445, right? Now, when you calculated the king's reigns, they were calculated from the first month of their reign. The first of the month. So if you took office on January 10th, we would call your reign beginning January 1. That's how they calculated the reigns of the king. The first month of the reign. And the first month of Artaxerxes reign was the month Nisan. That's a calendar, that's not a car. The month Nisan is March-April. They cal- their months didn't overlap with ours. They were generally from the 15th to the 15th. So there was an overlap. And the decree that Artaxerxes wrote to Nehemiah, assigning responsibility to rebuild Jerusalem's walls, was issued on Mar- March 14th, 445 B.C. So March 14th, 445 B.C., God's countdown clock for the appearance of Messiah the Prince started ticking. Now that first subdivision is 49 years. At the end of 49 years, the city of Jerusalem was to be rebuilt with plaza and walls and moats, even in times of distress. Well, you look at that and you say, Nehemiah had a pretty tough time rebuilding the walls. He got them done in 52 days. What you don't know is when you read the rest of the book of Nehemiah and the rest of Ezra, there was opposition, local opposition to the Jews rebuilding the city for years and years and decades. That's why he says, even in times of distress. Now, you take 445 BC and you minus 49 years on your diagram, you get to 396. What happens in 396? Well, you not only have the completion of Jerusalem, you have the completion of the Old Testament. Malachi, the last book in the Bible, was finished about 400 BC. This was the last revelation from God to the nation of Israel for 400 years. Until when? John the Baptist. This is also known as the silent years. So that's the first seven years. What about the second 62 times seven years? The second 434 years? That began in 396, and it ended with Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem when he presented himself as Messiah the king. Remember when Christ was here on earth, and people kept trying to make him king? And he said, my time's not come, my time's not come, my time's not come. Then one day, the day we call Palm Sunday, Jesus deliberately arranges it in order to fulfill prophecy and have Israel declare him as king. He's fulfilling Zechariah 9:9 where Zechariah says, "Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of the donkey." And the crowds, what did they sing? Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a messianic title from Psalm 118, verse 22. So they were fulfilling prophecy. Jesus arranged for them to fulfill prophecy. Unfortunately, the religious leaders rejected Messiah. The exact date of Jesus Christ's triumphal entry to Jerusalem was April 6, 32 AD. That was the Sunday prior to Passover which occurred on Thursday, April 10th, A.D. 32. Now, we know this because if you read Luke 3, it tells us that Tiberius Caesar began to reign in 14 A.D. We know that because Caesar Augustus died in 14 A.D. Tiberius Caesar succeeded Caesar Augustus. And Luke 3 tells us that the beginning of Jesus' ministry occurred in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar. Now, what's 15 and 14? So we know that Jesus' ministry, if it began in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar, and Tiberius Caesar took over in 14, Jesus' ministry began in 29 AD. Jesus celebrated four Passovers during his three and a half years of public ministry. The final Passover occurred on Thursday night before his Friday crucifixion. That's when he instituted the Lord's Supper. So from Artaxerxes' decree on March 14, 445, to the triumphal entry was exactly 483 years to the day. According to the Jewish calendar, 483 years times 360 days per year is 173,880 days. If you want to do it on the Gregorian calendar, 365 plus days, March 14, 445 to April 6, 32, corrected for leap years is also exactly 173,880 days. Sir Robert Anderson wrote a fascinating book called The Coming Prince in the 1890s, and all this. Now, this predictive prophecy authenticates God's Word as being of supernatural origin. Many, many, many secular scholars have problems with this because they have a problem with God. So they've attempted to claim that this actually was written three or four hundred years after the fact, in order to discount the fact that predictive prophecy could occur. There's a problem with that. We have this thing called the Septuagint translation. Uh, uh, Ptolemy, Philadelphus commissioned 70 70 Septuagint Jewish scholars to translate the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek, because everybody spoke Greek at that period of time. And that work product was began in 285, it was finished by 270 almost three centuries before Christ, we have work product copies of that Bible translation, including the book of Daniel. So the early dating of Daniel is well documented. This prophecy is so detailed and fulfilled precisely to the day that it's extraordinary evidence that God obviously predicts the future and brings it about precisely as predicted to demonstrate his authority. What is terrifying is that Jesus expected Israel to know the exact day of his coming. Luke nineteen forty one, When Jesus approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hen you in on every side, and they will love you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another. Why? Because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Here's the principle. God holds us accountable to live according to the knowledge he has given to us in the Bible. God holds us accountable to live according to the knowledge he has given to us in the Bible. We have utterly no excuse. We've got dozens of Bibles in dozens of languages all around the world. We're drowning in truth. We're disobeying it but we certainly cannot claim ignorance of it. Jesus held them accountable to know the precise day of his appearance based on Daniel's prophecy. And the Old Testament's filled with prophecies about a coming Messiah. This is the only one that predicts the precise day he's going to come and present himself as their king. And since they rejected him and executed, he pronounced divine judgment on him. Verse 26. So now we've gone, rebuilding of the temple, the coming of the Messiah. What happens after that? Verse 26 says, after the 62 weeks, after the 483 years, the Messiah will be cut up, cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. So God is now telling Daniel... Here's what's going to happen between the 69th and the 70th week. After the 69th week is completed, after the second subdivision, but before the last seven, three events will occur. Number one, it says the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. The Hebrew there is kerat, which means to execute. It refers to the execution of a person given the death penalty for a crime. We know that Messiah was what? Crucified as a criminal. Right? On a cross. Psalm 22 gives us excruciating detail about crucifixion written by David a thousand years prior. Isaiah 53 describes the Messiah as what? A sheep being led to the slaughter. Israel has had lots of Old Testament prophecy regarding the coming of the Messiah, and now they know the exact day he's supposed to show up, and they rejected him. It says, Messiah will not only be cut off, he's also going to have nothing. It means nothing for himself. Messiah came and they executed him and gave him nothing. No honor, no worship, no acknowledgement that he was Messiah. He deserved worship and he bore the sins of the world. Right? He did not die for himself, he died for the sins of others. He received nothing from this world. Second thing that's going to happen is the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. It says, the people. Very definite article means a specific people are going to destroy Jerusalem. And it's not the prince who is to come that will destroy the city. It is the people of the prince who is to come who will destroy the city. And this is little p prince, not big p prince. Little p prince is not Christ, that's capital P. This is little p prince, meaning Antichrist. Daniel 7 refers to him as the little horn. Daniel 8 refers to him as the king of willful countenance, fierce countenance, etc. So after Messiah is executed the people of the Antichrist will come. Now remember, God showed Daniel four world empires. Babylon, Persia, Greece, what was the last one? Rome. So the final world empire will be a version of Rome and Antichrist will lead it. And those people will destroy Jerusalem, his people, and the temple after the Messiah is cut off. Christ was crucified in AD 32. Thirty-eight years later, the Romans, under Vespasian and his son Titus, invaded Israel with 100,000 troops and destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. They literally leveled the place. Third, it says its end will come as a flood. Now, a flood does what? Comes suddenly and sweeps everything in front of it. When the word flood is used symbolically in the Bible, it almost always means a military invasion. In Luke 21, Matthew 24 as well, we have something called the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus' disciples get a private briefing about the future of Israel and the future uh, in general during uh, tribulation times. And Jesus told them that Jerusalem is going to be surrounded by armies. He said, when you see that happening, flee to the mountains. The Jewish war lasted four years, AD 66 to 70. And it was literally an inferno that swept the Jews out of their land. And that began the diaspora that did not end until May 14th of 1948. They literally spent 1,900 years dispersed. And that was judgment from Christ on them for rejecting their Messiah, which they had been told about. More than 1 million Jews died in Jerusalem alone. This happened during Passover. There were literally a million people inside the city. For the celebration, Titus Vespasian came, surrounded the city, starved them over a period of months, and on August of 70, they breached the walls, and Josephus records that the slaughter was beyond comprehension. Beyond the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, God Gabriel told Daniel, even to the end, there's going to be desolations determined for your people. Have you noticed? that Israel has been persecuted for two millennia, almost without exception or cessation. Half of the United Nations resolutions are against Israel. We're talking about a nation that's, you know, 290 miles from very tip-top to very tip-bottom, you know, less than 10 million people, not a significant port. Why are they under such oppression by the world? Well, there's this little character called Satan. And Satan hates Israel because Israel was the birth of the Messiah that's going to kill him and throw him in the lake of fire. And so, Satan is committed and he incites people throughout history, which you'll find out in the next lesson, to attack Jews and try and persecute them. So, we know that ultimately Jewish persecution is going to continue. It's going to get worse until Israel cries out to their Messiah to rescue them, Hosea 5, and Jesus promises, I will forgive and save them, Jeremiah 31 and Zechariah 12. Verse 27, And he, little pea prince Antichrist, will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the week of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction One that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Let me try and unpack that for you. Here's the principle. God's sovereign plan allows evil to grow until he returns and completely destroys wickedness and wicked ones. God's sovereign plan allows evil to grow until he returns and completely destroys wickedness and wicked ones. Now, we're in the third subdivision of this prophetic panorama that God has outlined. The first 49 years have happened, the second 434 years have happened, so we have Messiah coming, we have the destruction of Jerusalem, we have the dispersion of the Jewish nation, and now we jump into the last seven, which is called the 70th week of Daniel. It's probably the most highly documented period of biblical prophecy in all of Scripture. We call it the Tribulation, or the Great Tribulation. The Old Testament is often called the Day of the Lord, or the Day of Jacob's Trouble. This is a seven-year period that is excruciatingly documented in Revelation 6 through 19. So, you've got a significant chunk of Revelation details this period of time. And the starting point of this whole 490-year prophecy was the decree to rebuild Jerusalem. The first two divisions end with Messiah's presentation of Israel's king. Now, there's this significant gap between the second division, Christ's crucifixion, and the last seven years of the Great Tribulation. We are living in that gap. That is the age of the church where God accomplishes his work through planet Earth through the church. So when will that gap end and the final seven years of history commence. He will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. The prince that shall come, the Antichrist, is going to make a strong treaty. That means a treaty with strong guarantees with the nation of Israel. Antichrist is going to promise to protect Israel from her enemies. We know that as time moves toward the end of this age, Israel is going to come under increasingly assault. We also know that at the end, Israel will stand alone, which is not good for us because God judges people that don't support his people, Israel. But at the end, we know that Israel will stand alone and Antichrist is going to make promises to them to protect them and they are going to sign a seven-year treaty, Antichrist and the leadership of Israel, and that is the trigger point where the seven-year tribulation begins. Now, the rapture of the church occurs before this treaty is signed. We don't know how much in advance. Many people think, well, when we rapture, immediately the trade is going to be signed. We don't know that. There's nowhere in Scripture that says how long that's going to take. We could be raptured, it could be a week, it could be a year, it could be ten years. But the trigger point of the beginning of the great tribulation is a seven-year treaty arrangement between the Antichrist and the nation of Israel. The Antichrist is not going to keep that treaty. It says in the middle of the week, in the middle of that seven-year period, he's going to order them to stop sacrificing grain offerings. So after three and a half years, Israel is going to be betrayed by the Antichrist. He's going to break treaty with them, and he's going to force them to stop their sacrificial system. Which means that they will have a temple built if they have a sacrificial system. Who's going to build the temple? I suspect very strongly, Antichrist himself will help them build the temple. And it's probably that event itself that will cause them to trust him to sign the seven-year arrangement. It says, on the wing of abominations will come who makes desolate. So, wing refers to an overspreading influence, like wings on a bird. It refers to the time when Antichrist will declare himself to be God. Because he will do that. We know that from Revelation. And he will demand that the world worship him. And the word abomination often in scripture refers to an idol. It means, and we know this from Revelation 13, that Antichrist is going to set up an image of himself inside the temple, which means the temple will be rebuilt, and he will demand everyone to fall down and worship him. And if you don't do it, you're executed. Revelation 13, 14 to 15. And it says, there is one who makes desolate. Obviously, that's the Antichrist. The very last phrase of this prophecy is interesting. It says, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Well, you say, Brad, what do you mean? Well, the complete destruction is God's judgment. The one who does the decreeing or the determining is God himself. And the one who makes desolate is the Antichrist. So it means two things. The duration of the tribulation will not last a single day longer than God has predetermined it. It will last seven years to the day, right? And at the very end of the tribulation, the Antichrist will be completely destroyed. We know that, Revelation tells us, that the the Antichrist, the false prophet, and Satan will be thrown alive into the lake of fire. That's going to happen. So you say, well, okay, so what's the whole point? Why would God go to all the trouble to write down a prophecy in four or five verses that details to the day when Messiah is going to come? First and foremost, God and approximate never show up in the same sentence. We serve a God of precision. When he says he's going to do something on this time, he does it on time. Number two, when God predicts the future, he does it to demonstrate that he is God and no one else is God. His supernatural nature. Number three, he expects you to read what he wrote and live in light of that knowledge. See, it's easy for us to say, well, okay, he held the Jews accountable because they didn't know the day of his coming. All right, that's pretty severe. 2,000 years of persecution because... You failed to pay attention to the first thousand years of prophecy and this one that told you the precise day he's going to come. So what has God written in Scripture that he's going to hold you and I accountable for? Everything. He didn't write it down as suggestions. He wrote it down because he expects you and me under the power of the Holy Spirit to read it and understand it, and live in alignment with it. See, it's very easy to say, well, this is an interesting book, and it's, it's yeah, this is fascinating. It's got some interesting things to say. No. We're held accountable to live according to it. Our, our standard of accountability is no different than Israel's. We have the Holy Spirit. What's our excuse? So, I plead with you, when you read this, God has purpose. Every morning you open your Bible, and you read 8 verses, 10 verses, two chapters, if you're like Carolyn, and most of you, I think it's a great pattern, read through the scripture. God has a message for you that morning, that he wants you to follow that morning or night, whenever you read it. Does that make sense? And he will hold us accountable for that. Here's the good news. The destruction of evil is not the end of the story. The end of the story is not just the end of man's sinful rule and the destruction of the Antichrist. It's that there is a king who is coming back to his planet and he is establishing his eternal kingdom and he will rule and reign forever. There's an old song Bill Gaither wrote called The King is Coming. You probably have heard that right. We need to live in light of that. Because this world's a mess. I mean, it's disintegrating in front of us. Where should our hope be? Not here. Our hope is the fact that the king is coming and he's establishing his kingdom and it will be a kingdom of righteousness. Okay, let's summarize and then we'll cover prayer and praise. Number one, history is both purposeful and directional. History is not random. It's not cyclical. History is moving in a direction precisely where God wants it to move. In God's perfect time, he will put an end to sin and impose everlasting righteousness. The king is coming. Number two, God holds us accountable to live according to the knowledge he has given us in the Bible. So by the way, just a side note, when you read scripture, before you read it, ask the Holy Spirit to open your mind, and after you read it, ask him for strength to obey it. I personally believe you should not read scripture without saying at the end of it, okay, Lord, what do you want me to do in light of that knowledge? How can I obey what you've told me? And Lastly, God's sovereign plan allows evil to grow until King Jesus returns and completely destroys wickedness and wicked ones. This is a hard one for us. Because we look at this planet, which is cratering and imploding, and we say, God, how come you're not doing anything? God is always doing something. But his plan is for evil to grow. His good plan, his sovereign plan, is not the author of evil, but he allows it to accomplish his purposes. Does that mean we should not stand against evil? We should stand against evil, but we should not be surprised when evil grows. Because God allows it to grow, to demonstrate the evil, the wickedness of the human heart and Satan, and to save us, from that by His grace. He is coming, and when He comes, He will destroy wickedness and establish righteousness. And in Him is our hope, not our circumstances. Amen? Okay. Love you guys. Now that you know, do.